Hello, I'm Rafik Krikorian, and I'm the host of Technically Optimistic. Big welcome to all our new listeners. A little bit about me. I'm the Chief Technology Officer at Emerson Collective. And over the past two decades, I've been in all corners of the tech world. I'm an MIT alum, I was a VP of engineering at Twitter, and I worked on self-driving cars at Uber. And on this show, we want to bring you stories about technology that are different from most tech shows in at least two ways. First, we don't do simple boosterism about all the world-changing good that tech is going to do. And we don't want to just talk doom and gloom either. If you want tech hype or tech phobia, there are plenty of other podcasts that do that. On Technically Optimistic, we are all about the nuances. We ask a lot of big questions, and there aren't always easy answers. This past summer, we started our show with our first season all about AI. 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 The AI craze. I mean, we are on the cusp of unleashing an intelligence revolution. If you haven't heard this, check it out. It's six episodes in total, and you'll hear from AI luminaries like Tristan Harris and Sneha Revenor, both of whom were just named to Time's AI 100 list. Tech pioneers like Sal Khan and Roz Picard, a sitting senator and U.S. congressman, and Nobel laureate Maria Reza. Start with episode one. It's packed with the lesser-known recent history of artificial intelligence, and Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist John Markoff is our guide. In 1962, there were two laboratories that were created on opposite sides of the Stanford campus. One was created by John McCarthy, who had actually coined the term AI in 1955. And McCarthy came to Stanford and created the Stanford Artificial Intelligence Lab with the intent of building machines that replaced humans. In the time since our first season wrapped, we've put out a few bonus episodes featuring interviews with Vatican Culture Secretary Bishop Paul Tai, Hawaiian geneticist Kiolu Fox, foreign policy expert Ian Bremer, data scientist and machine learning professor Kyung Young Cho, and Timnit Gebru, who's also on Time's AI 100 list. Time Magazine, thanks for being a listener. Our first season was all about AI, but season two will have a different focus. We're excited to tell you more about it real soon, so stay tuned. But in the meantime, Here's an announcement. We have just launched the Technically Optimistic newsletter. Every week, through our Technically Optimistic lens, you'll see what I'm seeing, reading, and thinking about. And every once in a while, I'll bring you exclusive interviews delivered right to your inbox. It's going to be a place where we can talk about what's going on in the world this week and have an ongoing conversation with all y'all. Go to technicallyoptimistic.substack.com to subscribe. It's totally free. That's technicallyoptimistic.substack.com. For today's episode, we're bringing you a discussion with Justin Hendricks. Justin spent over a decade at The Economist, and he was the executive director of the New York City Media Lab. He's now the CEO and editor of Tech Policy Press, a nonprofit media and community venture covering the intersection of technology and democracy. 
It was a discussion about how we should balance speed and safety in the development of AI. We had this conversation three weeks ago as a live event on Zoom hosted by Emerson Collective. The show you're about to hear is an edited recording of that live event. And towards the end, it even includes some Q&A from the audience. If you're just coming to our podcast and haven't heard our first season yet, this could be a great introduction to the show. Justin is a great communicator about a lot of issues that we cover in detail. And as you'll hear, we've even spliced in a few clips from our first season here and there as they give us some context. Even if you've already heard our first season, and by the way, thanks for all our diehards out there, there's still a ton of stuff you'll learn from Justin. Our website is emersoncollective.com slash technically optimistic. Subscribe to the newsletter at technicallyoptimistic.substack.com. And as always, follow us on social media at Emerson Collective. And hey, the intro is not usually this long. Thanks for sticking with us. Here's my conversation with Justin Hendricks. Justin, thanks so much for talking with me today. So let me start out by asking you, what makes AI different? Like, there is such an intense focus on AI right now. Is that because of something unique about this technology? Well, I'd say maybe a couple of things. I mean, number one, as you well know, uh, artificial intelligence as a technology and as a policy issue has been around for a long time now. This is not necessarily new to folks who look at tech policy issues but it's certainly at an inflection point uh, because of the fact, quite literally, that uh, a handful of technologies have captured the public imagination and captured the imagination, I think, of lawmakers uh, and have made the perhaps need to regulate artificial intelligence appear to be more urgent. And so we're seeing a lot of activity in legislatures from the city and the town level on through to nation state and uh, perhaps super nation state uh, level thinking about this. And there's just a ton of policy proposals and new bills being suggested. So right now is a kind of a, a hot moment when it comes to artificial intelligence and policy. Can you talk to me about how do you get people to care about these issues in the first place? Like, I mean, a lot of these are buzzwords. People sort of like drone out when they're listening. People are used to trusting technology companies, technology people to sort of just like manage it for them. Like, how do you think about this time around getting people to actually care about the issues? Uh, It's interesting that you say that. We just did a a sort of reader survey, first one that we've done, and kind of looked at who is reading Tech Policy Press, who's paying attention. And what's been interesting to me is that while over half of the folks who responded, you know, say they do tech policy work for a living, so they're, you know, involved in it either in government or in industry or in a civil society group, watchdog group, what have you, there's that other half. Uh, These are folks who are studying the issue. They could be academics. Uh, But we found a significant number of folks who are concerned citizens, Hmm. folks who look at the problem of technology as kind of core to some of the problems that face democracy at the moment, that face society. Uh, And they're following these things very closely because I think they see the implications in their daily lives. Perhaps they're concerned about child online safety, or perhaps they're concerned about disinformation in elections, or perhaps they're concerned about, you know, some other aspect of, of the way tech interacts with their lives. 
But, you know, I think since uh, certainly the beginnings of the quote unquote tech lash, uh, which some people would say perhaps started in 2016 or so, that genuine curiosity amongst people, um, it, it's only only built. Let's talk about sort of like this power vacuum then for a second. So like right now, I mean, you're the expert, so I'll tell you what I think I'm seeing, but I'd love you to help decode it. Like we're seeing a bunch of the technology companies sort of do their own thing, develop these technologies, deploy them to the world. And we're seeing government at this point racing to try to figure out what they should do. And kind of like every single level, like you're seeing sort of like the federal government try to think about stuff. California is trying to think about stuff. Other states similar. Maybe New York City is trying to think about stuff. Can you walk us through that landscape? What are all the different things going on and how should we think about them? Yeah, I, mean, I guess there are, there are so many places to start, so many different levels from which we could kind of come at this. Um, I suppose just looking around the world, we can perhaps start not too far off. Let's start in the EU. While generally regarded as a laggard uh, on innovation and the development of new technologies, the EU is somewhat ahead with regard to the regulation of technologies. Now, some people think that's you know, sour grapes and they just want to kind of hold these American uh, tech firms to account uh, for the sake of it. But, you know, with regard to artificial intelligence, the EU is, is well ahead, having developed a thing called the EU AI Act, uh, which perhaps might become law by the end of this year. The European Union is on the brink of becoming the first major power in the world to regulate artificial intelligence. Lawmakers are currently debating... The AI Act, which has been under discussion for years, recently cleared the first of several legislative steps toward possibly becoming law. This is a sweeping bill aimed at doing several things at once, including classifying AI systems into a four-tiered level of risk. AI used in critical infrastructure such as electricity would be classed high risk and subject to compliance rules. Banning some usages of AI. Uses deemed unacceptable, like China's state surveillance-driven social credit system, would be banned. And setting rules and standards for AI in other usages, like recruiting or medical systems. There have been various amendments made to it lately, in particular to kind of take into account generative AI, uh, large language models, things like ChatGPT, et cetera. And there are lots of various inquiries that are going on in European member states uh, into things like open AI and into data protection issues that have emerged from, from that. Um, then you've got also these two other big pieces of legislation there. The Digital Services Act, which just came into effect August 25th, uh, and the Digital Markets Act, which became effective earlier this year, uh, which both kind of regulate the big tech space. So in some ways, the EU's a bit ahead. The U.S., on the other hand, we have our typical kind of laissez-faire approach to regulation. You know, we've seen some federal agencies kind of perk up. The FTC's written a bunch of warnings about how it's monitoring applications of, of AI for possible consumer deception or fraud. You've got the Biden administration with a bunch of really good initiatives in some cases around the blueprint for an AI Bill of Rights, which is a more conceptual document. And that's what Suresh Venkata Subramanian helped create. In 2022, working for the White House Office for Science and Technology Policy, he was on the team that drafted a blueprint for an AI Bill of Rights. So the Bill of Rights consists of a set of five principles, and with those five principles are a long list of associated practices. And these are meant to guide organizations 
through the effective development and implementation of AI systems with particular emphasis on unintended consequences of civil and human rights abuses. So the associated practice... This idea of a system being tested to be effective and safe, that it actually does what it claims to do, that would seem like the one-on-one level of software engineering requirements for a system, that it does what its specs say it's supposed to do. And yet there are systems out there that are not even tested before they're put out in the world and affect people. It's ridiculous. We're doing, you know, experimental evaluation on people in real time rather than actually testing things out first. So the Bill of Rights is merely, merely codifying all the things we've discovered systems fail to do and saying, hey, you should at least think a little bit. But then the most important thing, perhaps in the U.S., is uh, across the states, we've seen a huge amount of legislative uh, kind of creativity uh, and a lot of different shots on goal with regard to how to regulate AI. I would also just point out there's various other approaches that are happening around the world. Some folks may be paying attention to what's going on in China. And while it's hard in some cases to compare what's happening here versus what's happening uh, perhaps in uh, such a very different political system, it is very interesting to see the sort of Chinese government taking a much firmer stance on artificial intelligence, containing the power of tech firms, trying to introduce rules about the way that things like synthetic media or generative AI can be used, all sorts of requirements and restrictions that essentially are an attempt to sort of suborn these companies and these technologies uh, to the interests of the state. So there are a bunch of different models out there. We can go up and down the stack, however you might like. Could you explain why is it important that the EU is moving? Like what's actually going to be the global implications of the EU sort of like trying to figure this out before, say, the U.S. does for its own citizens? Oh, one thing that is clear when you look at EU policy documents is that they are very methodical in terms of obviously doing consultation, bringing in experts, uh, really kind of bringing to bear a lot of outside, including academic perspectives on issues before they move to craft legislation. Now, there would be some who argue that the output uh, may not reflect the robustness of the process, but... That's actually something that California Congressman Jay Obernolte told me in episode three of our first season. The European Union is way out over their skis on it. I mean, they have basically panicked, thrown up their hands and said, uh, something must be done. We have to do something now, 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 immediately. And so, you know, two years ago, they drafted this thing called the AI Act, and they just amended it substantially, which took a long time because they've essentially rewritten the entire bill. And when you look at the changes that they made, you understand why, because large language models were not even a thing. You know, they weren't didn't even exist when the original EUAI Act was created. So they've had to, you know, pivot suddenly to deal with these things. That's kind of a reactionary approach to what's going on. So I think it behooves us to be a little bit more thoughtful than that. Putting that aside for the moment, the reality is that a lot of folks look at the European Union as the standard setter. And so what you see happening is literally copying and pasting from European legislation into proposed legislation elsewhere. Uh, This has happened with the Digital Services Act most recently, uh, where we've seen multiple countries literally take whole chunks of text around uh, how to manage and regulate social media platforms and try to implement it in another legal context. And I suspect that will happen with AI as well. If the EU does, in fact, pass this law, or even if it doesn't, uh, already the the text is there, 
I think you'll see a lot of countries rely on it as a model. I mean, there's also probably the implication that if the EU passes a bunch of laws, tech companies will have to comply, and those changes that they make to their software are just going to be global anyway. There's like an effect that occurs once Brussels decides to do something. Uh, that's right. The Brussels effect, they call it, in fact. And in, in some cases, we're, uh, some folks are also worried about what they call a dark Brussels effect, uh, which is this sort of notion that on the flip side, if in fact, you know, a lot of effort goes into complying with European regulation, that tech firms may pay less attention to the context in other markets. Oh. They may try to uh, protect European citizens, perhaps to the detriment of folks outside of the EU. As you're observing U.S. lawmakers, as they're sort of watching what the Europeans are doing, I'm sure some of them are saying things like they're moving too fast or like they're overreaching in a bunch of different ways. What's your read on how U.S. lawmakers see all this other outside U.S. work going? I do think that uh, some U.S. lawmakers are paying attention to what's happening in the EU in particular, uh, and there is a good amount of dialogue we see take place. There are some places where that dialogue uh, does occur. There's a thing called the Trade and Technology Council, which has emerged as a sort of membrane through which EU and U.S. uh, policymakers can talk about issues like AI. And that seems to be a, a very good mechanism on some level for people from the European Commission to interact with folks from the White House uh, and other leaders in the U.S. Before we get into actual U.S. regulation, what's your read on the possibility of like uh, international coordination on what these type of things should look like? So a lot of folks are, are calling for this. Uh, you see some op-eds recently uh, that have called for you know global governance of artificial intelligence. On my podcast recently, I had a couple of academics who brought this up in a, a paper where they looked at all the various possibilities for global governance mechanisms for artificial intelligence. And what they found is that, to some extent, there already is global governance of artificial intelligence in a lot of practical ways. But when it comes to you know, what is the appropriate body or, you know, how might we kind of contend with these things in, in, in some kind of global context, it's actually very complicated uh, and hard to imagine that maybe in the popular mind, United Nations or some entity like that might come along and put a foot down when it comes to AI. It's very hard to imagine that being the case. But it is possible that blocks of countries or whole groups of countries can set standards, can adopt similar regulations. Uh, can certainly require the same types of transparency, and that might end up being a kind of form of global governance. At some point, we need to talk about the China implications through all this, especially with semiconductors and the economic ramifications. But can you break down the few big ways that the U.S. is sort of contemplating what regulation could look like? Well, I mean, I think one of the things that will be in the news next week, if it's not already on folks' radars, is that Senator Chuck Schumer will host the first of what he has claimed will be a series of discussions around artificial intelligence. He's developed what he calls the Safe Innovation Framework. Uh, That stands for Security, Accountability, Foundations, Explainability, and Innovation. And he's trying to essentially kind of lead on the legislative front uh, and, and really kind of focus the interests of lawmakers uh, into these, these hearings. We'll see how it goes. There's been a lot of criticism already of the fact that the hearings are, at least in this first iteration, heavily weighted towards the views and the perspectives of 
the leaders of large companies. So, you know, you've got representatives there from Facebook and Meta on through to OpenAI and Anthropic and others, uh, and only a handful of voices who appear to represent kind of other perspectives, uh, civil society and perhaps, you know, civil and human rights perspectives. By the way, that big hearing Justin was referring to happened on September 13th. Good afternoon, folks. Here's some of what Senator Schumer had to say to the press when it was done. This was an amazing and historic experience where we learned so much. We got some consensus on some things that we needed real help in sustainable innovation. That's minimizing the negatives that AI could, could emerge from AI, whether it's enshrining bias or the loss of jobs or even the kinds of doomsday scenarios that were mentioned in the room. And only government can be there to put in guardrails. Because even though some of the companies in this room said they were going to try to implement some of these things themselves, and many had joined the voluntary guidelines that the White House issued, it's clear that there will be rogue companies and other companies that will not go along on their own. And that will bring down everybody. They'll go seek a lowest common denominator. So it is 100% clear that we also need maybe even more government innovation in coming up with sustainable guidelines, which means the government putting guardrails in place. One thing that Schumer has said is that the North Star we can all agree on is the necessity of innovation. So the, the language he's using perhaps says quite a lot about where lawmakers' heads are when it comes to what the priorities should be. So decode that for me. Why do you think that's the case? How do you think we ended up there? Yeah, I mean, I you know, uh, look how much money is spent in Washington, D.C. by large technology companies to set the agenda, not just set in Washington, D.C., but also in state capitals around the country. And I think lawmakers are terrified of the idea that, that they might do something which would hold us back, uh, hold the economy back, uh, hold us back from a national security perspective, hold us back from a scientific or technological supremacy perspective. There's very much a sort of sense among leaders that AI is potentially the last and greatest technological race that humanity will run. Uh, and I think some truly believe that if you lose that race, then you lose status as a, as a superpower. Let's approach that from maybe a different angle. So where do you think, as you're, again, talking to lawmakers, listening to what they're saying, what do you think the different perspectives on like where responsibility lies? In some ways, you can argue what you just said about Senator Schumer is that maybe responsibility in his mind lies with the companies to self-regulate or, you know, the White House did that voluntary thing. And today I'm pleased to announce that these seven companies have agreed to voluntary commitments for responsible innovation. These commitments, which uh, the companies will implement immediately, underscore three fundamental principles, safety, security, and trust. Almost by definition, they're saying it rests with the companies to actually regulate themselves. Can you draw out the other places that this might end up being? Yeah, and uh, I would point to some work by Anna Linhart, who's a former congressional staffer for Representative uh, Lori Trahan from Massachusetts, who's done a great deal of work just kind of summarizing and collecting every piece of legislation that's been proposed in the United States over the last couple of Congresses that could have any potential impact on artificial intelligence. 
looking at the language, looking at what appears to be, you know, the motivating forces, what are the kind of ideas that underlie that. And I think it's fair to say that, you know, in this country, very much the thought is how do you extract the benefit without killing the golden goose, without putting too much constraint on companies? And so those types of ideas around self-policing, self-regulation appear to be the sort of, I guess, most popular kind of approach at the moment. You know, we'll see. There are other legislative efforts, I think, at the state level that are a little more, uh, let's say, not convinced (laughs) necessarily (laughs) that we should trust our machine overlords um, and and the companies that are building them. Um, So we'll see which way things go. And I suspect, too, that we haven't had yet what I think of as kind of like a, a big catalyzing event, a moment where maybe some of the, the harms of these things has really kind of captured the public attention. But if I were going to make any prediction you know, on this podcast today, it would be that some catalyzing event will occur uh, over the next year to two. We have such a significant number of, obviously, privacy violations and concerns and scandals and things of that nature Uh, at this point that it's almost difficult for the public to keep up with all of the problems there. And so we'll have to kind of discern uh, between the sort of typical and standard uh, types of of scandals that we see from tech firms and ones that seem more uh, like something new, something that's driven by artificial intelligence. Uh, But I predict we will see a catalyzing event sometime in the next two years. Okay, I think I need you to repeat this just to make sure people get it, because I think it's actually a pretty important point. Like, maybe let's draw an analogy. CFPB, the Consumer Finance Protection Bureau, was born out of a bunch of things going wrong in the financial sector. You're basically saying like that a similar thing might be needed in order to get enough intention to even think about what we should be doing here. That's right. And I don't, I don't know exactly what that thing will be. You know, the reality is that there's a, a great number of researchers collecting, collating, and uh, reporting on various harms that are being caused every day right now by artificial intelligence uh, in often systems that don't rise to the level of being salient in the news cycle. Uh, you know, maybe they are a bias in the way that some benefit system is supplying benefits to people or maybe you know it's a mechanism that appears to optimize for one outcome over another that has a kind of uh, antisocial effect. You know these things are happening all the time. Not to mention some of the more high-profile things where you see things like self-driving cars go off the rails or what have you. So I I don't know. We haven't quite had that thing yet where it's really sort of become a kind of public rallying cry, something that that people seem to to believe is is necessary in the near term, but I think it's coming soon. More of my conversation with Justin Hendricks is coming up after a quick break. I'd be curious from, again, from what you're hearing, are there still pockets of those who are just like, we just need to leave this completely to the market? Like there actually should be completely governmental hands-off-ness and just make this completely a capitalistic market-driven thing. 
Oh, absolutely. Um, I think you hear those voices coming out of Silicon Valley. I think in some cases you hear them coming out of uh, rooms that are more concerned about national security issues, uh, things of that nature. But but very much. Uh, I, I think that there's a line of thought uh, in Silicon Valley that we chronicle quite a lot on Tech Policy Press and talk about on the podcast there that essentially says, you know, we need government to get out of the way entirely and that the only salvation perhaps for humanity is to really invest as quickly and as much as possible in the development of these technologies and ultimately in the erasure of the institutions that stand in their way, because that's the only way we're going to solve the world's great problems. And while that might sound a a little wild to some folks listening, I don't think that those ideas are necessarily fringe in, in certain parts of the valley and in certain parts of other parts of the country. So, you know, we'll see what happens. I, I think there's a very strong political and, and sort of organized effort to avoid there being any regulation of tech generally. Let's talk about the international then. Let's go back to China. So, like, semiconductors restricting access. Like, what are the next few steps in this game? So, I guess that's one of the big fights is going to be around the the physical material that's necessary to advance artificial intelligence. Um, so you're seeing, you know, the beginnings of these resource conflicts over uh, precious metals and uh, certainly over the creation of, of semiconductors. If you're if you're reading more and more about rare earths uh, <laughs> in your term, it's it's going to be about this. And this is another flashpoint in the conflict over Taiwan and its strategic importance as a manufacturer of semiconductors and obviously as at the moment kind of oriented towards the West uh, and whether that will be a significant decision point for Western powers. If there is a Chinese invasion of the island, what will be the response? I think semiconductors and concerns over semiconductors will play a significant role in the answer to that question. And then, you know, you see, of course, the Biden administration uh, in this sweeping uh, industrial policy that that administration has enacted over the last couple of years, putting huge amount of emphasis on semiconductors. And I, I, you know, fair to say that that was also a concern of the prior administration as well. But these things take a long time to spin up. So, you know, you don't build a semiconductor manufacturing capacity overnight. It takes quite a long time. Uh, you're talking about very sophisticated facilities. But ultimately, you know, I suspect that you'll see quite a lot of that manufacturing capacity domesticized, as it were, because of all these geopolitical concerns. What about the implications on pure academic research? Like, if you look at all the academic papers being published right now on artificial intelligence, the number of non-English papers is very much on the rise. How do we need to think about the fact that the world is participating in this technology development? It's not, you know, it might start in the U.S. in some ways, but it's now like a global development project. Absolutely. Um, I would say I also am very interested in the degree to which academia can keep pace with industry. Um, I think that's a very important question and one that should be a question for lawmakers and government leaders to really think through. Um, Not only is it, you know, a challenge to kind of keep up from just a, a monetary perspective, but when it comes to access to data, you know, systems necessary to train and to evaluate and to otherwise keep up with the development of artificial intelligence, I think we're beginning to see a point where academia and industry are really separating uh, in terms of what's possible. And you see that in part by so many academics who know a thing or two about AI uh, wandering off to companies. 
a lot of folks think it's, oh, it's just because they want the money. I'm sure that plays an enormous role uh, in their decision-making. Absolutely, they're being offered huge sums of money. But I know and have spoken to multiple academics who have left for industry uh, because that's the only place they believe they can uh, advance the status quo they can, or they can advance into the future. It's where the resources are and it's where the understanding and the imagination is ultimately to go. And I think that's something that lawmakers and government need to be thinking about. How do you kind of make sure that there is a robust academic kind of counterweight to industrial research and development? Um, and that's going to be a challenge, I think, uh, going forward. I mean, there's also immigration consequences here of just like a lot of students come to the United States to study at Stanford, MIT, et cetera, Berkeley, CMU, and we don't provide them pathways to stay here and like actually continue to work here. So like they do go back and sort of like also like further sets this tension up. Absolutely. I mean, I teach in New York City, so I'd say 60, 70 percent of my students are international. And, you know, the idea that so many of them uh, can't find a way to stick around either here in New York or elsewhere in the United States uh, for more than a couple of years is absurd. (laughs) And we need to do more to make sure that we are permitting uh, folks into this country and taking advantage of the real economic benefits that come from that. I want to ask you about open source as it relates to this. Right now, a lot of these AI systems are being built by a few big companies, like whether it be OpenAI, Anthropic, Google, etc. And then a lot of them own their data, their training, the technology, the hardware to actually pull this off. There's a community of people building all these tools in the open, Meta being one of them, which basically means anyone can have access to this technology, maybe modular some hardware to run it. But this technology, this knowledge is actually just rapidly out there. I can go download papers on how to do it. I can download source code on how to do it. We can only contain this so much because it's just, it's out there. Yeah, absolutely. And this is one of those issues that I feel like is very complicated when you start to unpack it. Um, If you'll permit me just a quick tangent on this. Please. If you say you work on kind of tech policy or you work on disinformation or, uh, you know, you work on social media problems, et cetera, people will often kind of like offer up their, their solution, right? Um, which I always appreciate. It's, a, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting to hear like how ideas have kind of gone through the sieve into, into people's minds. And one thing that uh, people often say to me is anonymity. Mm. Anonymity on the internet. That's the problem, right? And of course, you know, if you sit down and you kind of look at the data and you look at the, <laughs> these ideas for a bit of time, you, you kind of dispense with that idea that anonymity is the problem on the internet. We won't get into why, but you know, needless to say, if you're out there thinking um, Justin's wrong about that, I'm happy to send you some citations. Um, the question around open source and AI is kind of like this in a way. It's like people look at it and they kind of immediately either think, ah, you know, we should make more things open because that will make the world a more competitive place and everyone will have a chance and um, that will be better. Everybody will be able to hold each other to account, et cetera. Or they look at it and say, oh no, everything's open source. That means all these dangerous systems are going to slosh around uh, uncontrolled and uh, terrible things are going to happen, et cetera. And, you know, really all of this is much more complicated and difficult to discern precisely what's happening. I would look at various academics who've written great papers just in recent weeks and months on questions related to open source and AI. One, uh, Irene Solomon who's at Hugging Face, actually, 
um, looked at the sort of gradient of open source release models and how, you know, from a very closed release to a very open release of different models, how different harms, different risks kind of stack up. And when you look at that gradient, it's not entirely clear that being entirely open or being entirely closed uh, or being somewhere in the middle is necessarily, you know, going to produce the result that you may be looking for, whatever you're trying to optimize for. Yeah. So, you know, there's a lot of ideas here. And I would just say, like many things in tech policy, it's complicated. (laughs) Um, Who's talking about, on the regulation side, the intersection of AI and climate policy right now? Ah, that's interesting. Um, It's a very important topic. I mean, you know, you know, the reality is that when you when you build one of these models, you burn a lot of carbon. Mm-hmm. And so there are a lot of folks who are calling for there to be standards um, and where all that heat goes. Yeah. We're going to have to think about that. Talk about a closed system. You know, unfortunately, the Earth is one. And if you burn the stuff, uh, it ends up either in the atmosphere or uh, otherwise kind of contributing to warming. And so we'll have to address that. Yeah, especially in this race of people building ever and ever bigger models, more computation, like literally talking about nuclear power plants, larger and larger power demands in order to actually pull this off. It seems to be a topic that will have implications at some point. You know, it is interesting to me that so many leaders of artificial intelligence firms are so invested in the idea that one of the reasons we need to advance artificial intelligence is so that we can get to fusion, because clearly a super intelligence or some kind of incredibly advanced AI will rapidly jump through the hoops of conceptualization and research that we need to do to arrive at working fusion. And you hear people like Sam Altman, who's the CEO of OpenAI, promise that we're so close to this age of abundance, right? Just around the corner, uh, we'll have fusion, we'll have solved poverty and hunger and things of that nature. It comes down to whether you buy it, right? Um, do you buy you buy that's where we're headed? I mean, yes, that's that's, that's fundamentally the question. It's just like there's this notion of like, is it inevitable, or do we as citizens, governments, etc., can we own the narrative instead of being an inevitable a narrative kind of thing? That's right. That's right. I have a lot of questions from the audience. Maybe we'll just start to slowly go through them. Question number one, what roles will AI play in its own regulation? Can we expect there to be intentionally designed safeguards due to it? Oh, that's interesting. Um, I don't know if I know uh, a good answer to that question. Um, The question itself uh, is is sort of scary, but I suspect that you will see uh, more thinking on that. Um, I'll have to go and see if there's good research on it. I haven't seen anything in the sort of policy community. One thing we have seen are a lot of stunts where lawmakers have asked ChatGPT to write a law that, you know, regulates ChatGPT or something along those lines. But uh, one thing that I would point to that we have seen in a handful of countries outside the U.S., including in, in Latin America, we've seen folks in courts bring in information sourced from large language models, including ChatGPT, into legal deliberations. And that, of course, is, is very concerning. Uh, so we'll see, you know, the extent to which we allow the AI systems into the actual machinations of making law or making uh, judicial decisions, I think we're a long ways off from being able to trust it, you know, uh, the outputs, but it could be that something that happens in the future. Um, Question number two, what's being done or should be done to address the fact that AI perpetuates biases? Is there anything we learn about how to regulate equitably from regulation of other technology? 
Yeah, and I think you know there's a huge community of researchers and activists out there who are basically incensed, I think is the right word, uh, by the fact that we're essentially seeing systems deployed, which we know have biases that are built in, uh, that are demonstrable, uh, that in some cases extraordinarily dangerous. And yet there's sort of a sense that, well, we'll work that out in the future or we'll deal with it on the back end when we actually deploy a system, we'll build in the protections after the fact. But this is a, a major concern. And a lot of legislative efforts around AI are intended to kind of look at transparency uh, and look at uh, the ability to audit models, audit training sets, that sort of thing. Um, And presumably, uh, that would be one mechanism to root out bias. But it's very difficult. You're talking about systems that that are difficult to interrogate uh, on some level. Um, And even if you think you've, you've rooted out one potential problem, If you look at the problem in a different way, you'll probably come up with another. You know, right now, you've got many of these large language models, which have been launched out into the world and are being incorporated into systems, and no one even knows what they've been trained on and what biases they may have. So this this is just a huge problem. As we think about that kind of like learning to regulate these type of things, how should we increase the collective knowledge of those regulators? Like, what are the things that we all can be doing or what are the things that they all need to be doing in order to make sure, not that everyone's an expert, but at least there's some base level literacy, technical literacy in Congress and in policymakers generally? Yeah, and I know that there are some efforts to to do this. Uh, You know, unfortunately, they're being led by industry uh, for the most part. Um, I'll just mention that I was at the National Conference of State Legislatures a couple of weeks ago in uh, Indianapolis and was there to attend a handful of sessions on tech policy-related issues. And there were a number of trainings for lawmakers about how AI works, et cetera. Uh, those trainings were led by Google and by Amazon. And so, you know, that's what's going on, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there's also an AI caucus in Congress at the moment, which has been active for a bit. It seems to be newly reinvigorated. And those lawmakers are doing their best to kind of educate one another. But there are some individuals in Congress who know a thing or two about artificial intelligence, including some who've studied it um, or who have backgrounds, academic backgrounds in machine learning or AI or computer science. Yeah, I mean, Representative Jay Oldenolte actually has a graduate degree in AI. And so like actually having people like him, I just don't believe that having only a few of these people is necessary. I think we sort of like need to broaden that aperture. Yeah, and you know, there are so many different folks who are working on this particular problem. I'd, I'd point to a program called Tech Congress, uh, which is trying to kind of grow the number of tech staffers, um, it seems like it should be possible to make some progress in terms of making folks uh, generally more aware of, of what the issues are. I think of that as one of the things they're doing at Tech Policy Press, trying to provide a resource that is accessible to lawmakers and to staffers, something that they can use to continuously educate themselves. I have another question from the audience. We've touched upon it briefly, but it's a different framing. How much is global competition for AI innovation holding the U.S. back from stronger regulation? Basically, I mean, if I read it correctly, basically, are we afraid of other countries to leapfrog us? So therefore, we're letting the reins go because of it. I mean, I guess I would just answer that question by saying, isn't that what we do across the entire economy? Uh, on some level. We have a generally laissez-faire approach to innovation and regulation. Um, Someone was 
I, Rafi, was you and I were talking the other day about the tension between innovation and regulation. Mm. There's no tension in this country between those two things, at least not that I see, not any real tension. You know, things are swung very much in the direction of build it, commercialize it, deploy it, uh, and deal with the aftermath, perhaps after the fact. I think that that's the kind of driving force. Uh, that That is the the American way at the moment. And very little seems to be going to stand in the path of it. So what do you think we can do to actually make that tension real? I mean, tensions aren't all bad. Tensions can be healthy. So like, what can we do in order to actually get that tension back or put it in place in the first place? Well, uh, why can't we do some of the basics, right? What about federal privacy legislation? When you think about some of the worst possible outcomes from artificial intelligence systems, the harms that we might all be worried about, whether it's biases and big systems that affect you know, the way that we all uh, interact with one another or with government benefits or what have you, or you think about disinformation and deepfakes and possible fraud and deception and you know things of that nature. All of it's made worse if these systems have unfettered access to massive amounts of personal data, right? So to me, that's got to be a major priority. So in this bid to come up with new legislation and new laws and new proposals, et cetera, I just hope that our lawmakers don't forget that we're way behind on some of the very basics, some of the things that have been put in place, certainly in the EU, but in many other countries as well, in providing some basic uh, data privacy protections as a civil and human right. So how should we be talking to marginalized communities, especially those that might be impacted by the digital divide? How should we be talking about AI in a way that doesn't only make them scared or only talk about the harms? Like, there is a world that if we can do this properly, it might be beneficial or it should be beneficial. So how do we actually thread that needle with these communities? Yeah, and... I realize we've talked a lot here about regulation uh, and policy, and I I wouldn't be doing what I do if I didn't think that there weren't benefits that come from technology and that there aren't real opportunities to address inequities and to address various problems. That's why we have to do this, right? For the remainder of the species, we're going to be developing technologies to solve increasingly complicated problems. So we have to maintain some hope or we wouldn't be doing this work. You know, I'm probably the wrong person to tell uh, any marginalized community the way it should be thinking about anything necessarily, but I'm looking for voices out there who are thinking about this problem and trying to elevate them on tech policy press. One project that I'm aware of that I'm interested in at the moment, for instance, is a project around rural AI policy. Mm. So thinking about like what artificial intelligence means for rural communities across the United States, which is something that fascinates me. That's super interesting. I'm going to squeeze in one last thing. What keeps you optimistic in this work? Well, I mean, I think a couple of things. One is the fact that uh, I see so many helpers, right? Started Tech Policy Press only a couple of three years ago. We've had almost 500 contributors, um, people coming coming out of the woodwork. I can barely keep up with it. Uh, So there's so many folks out there who have ideas, who want to solve problems. And I would just also say my students, uh, anybody who teaches, I mean, when you walk into a room and you're surrounded by people who are genuinely interested in trying to improve the world and improve matters and engage with ideas uh, and engage with one another in a constructive way, it's hard to lose faith. Justin, this has been so great. Thank you so much for spending time with us this morning. I'm very grateful for this opportunity. I thank you. 
Our email address is technicallyoptimistic at emersoncollective.com. Follow us on social media at Emerson Collective. I'm Rafik Rikorian. Thanks so much for listening and see you next time on Technically Optimistic. <laughs>